Welcome to the Inside Scoop Live podcast, where indie authors get personal about their books, their writing, and their passions. I'm your host, Sherry Hoyt. Join me for some lively conversations with debut indie authors and seasoned veterans alike. It's a great place to find your next amazing read or even get inspired. So sit back and enjoy the show and let me know what you think. Hey everyone, welcome back. Today I'm talking with Michael Devendorf, author of Deciduous. Deciduous is an intense mystery thriller that will keep you guessing until the very end. It's heartbreaking and gut-wrenching and an outpouring of a mother's love and strength. And that's all I'm going to tell you for now. But before we get started, here's the inside scoop on Michael Devendorf. Michael Devendorf served as a chief executive for a national organization and crafted corporate communications for the business community and the workforce. He traveled from coast to coast, meeting fascinating people and visiting remarkable places, presenting his message on company culture to audiences that included industry leaders and political figures. Those events have fallen into the crevices of his mind and sometimes crawl their way out to influence his writing today. Captivating storytelling that clings to the soul has always been his passion, and after years of letting life and career get in the way, he chose to step away from business and technical writing to devote himself to creativity instead. Michael is inspired by writing about juxtaposing emotions and provoking the reader with stories that defy strict categorization and blend genres. In addition to writing, he is a passionate animal welfare advocate, and he and his family split their time between Dallas, Texas, and northern Wisconsin. For more information about Michael Devendorf and his work, visit his website at michaeldevendorf.com. Well, hi, Michael. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Hi, Sherry. Thank you for having me on today. I'm happy to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to talk with you about your novel. Uh, So to get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about Deciduous? Sure. You're excited to talk to me. I'm really excited to talk with you. I'm excited to talk about the book. It's something that I can't seem to stop doing. But Deciduous is, it's about a mother's love and a mother's strength. Boil it down to that. It is a mystery thriller. Sienna, the protagonist, the main character, she loses two children within 10 months of each other, which is almost too terrible to be true. Yeah. And when social media trial by fire ignites around her, when the police begin to investigate these accidents, their accidental deaths, Sina is left questioning whether she herself is guilty of harming them as she really just tries to struggle to wrap her mind around the gravity of the events. But there is something wrong, something wrong with the treehouse. And the perspective of the story shifts between the parents Sienna and Jordan and their neighbor, Yvonne, all wondering if maybe there are paranormal events at play or not. Mm. And Sienna, she is plagued with nightmares, but the reader is left to wonder if it maybe is the mother's grief for her children that is covering her perspective. While some of the characters are convinced of Sienna's guilt, she does have a husband, Jordan, who seems to be her rock. And despite their rocky marriage, after losing two children, like any marriage would be, he seems to be supportive of her. And when it really feels like they've lost everything, uh, the stakes are raised again with a shocking twist. Dark secrets lurk in the trees, but they are not at all what you think. And I'll tell you, your reviewer said Deciduous has 
an ending that is one of the best she has read in years. She said it has a shocker secret that you won't see coming. And I love that. I thought that was a great description of really the whole point of this book to yeah. surprise. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I could ever beat that review. Really? <laughs> if I could ever oh. get anything better. She made my week when I read that. I was at lunch and it came in and uh, I'm just, just thrilled with it. Thrilled with that review. Oh, well, thank you for that. I, I really appreciate you saying that. Deciduous is such a unique concept. Where did you get the inspiration behind the storyline? The idea of a mother tree inspired me. A mother tree is a naturally occurring phenomena. In science, it's called a hub tree. It's where one established, mature, healthy tree nurtures younger trees, uh, struggling saplings in the vicinity through their interconnected root system. And that concept fascinated me. The idea that trees are interacting with each other and, I'll put it in quotes, communicating with each other. Mm-hmm. There, there's so much happening that we don't fully understand, but we can prove that it happens. We can test and prove it. I was actually in the forest and I discovered a meadow in some remote woods, deep way back in the forest. And there in the center of this meadow was a massive evergreen tree. And I'm pretty sure it was a Norway spruce. It's one of those trees that looks like a Christmas tree on steroids, just <laughs> an enormous tree, a Christmas tree you could climb. It's over 100 feet high, 40 feet wide, just this massive Christmas tree. And it stood there all alone in the center of this meadow, all by itself, as though something held the other trees at bay. Huh. All the other trees that bordered this meadow or held at bay by something. That's sort of the feeling I got. Mm-hmm. This lone, majestic tree seemed to own that meadow. It was ringed by maples and aspens and oak and all these other trees in the distance. And at first, the sight of it was a little eerie. It had an eerie feel. But the more I thought about that tree, why it was there in the middle by itself, no other trees going around it, and how I thought it might try through that deep interconnected root system to communicate with the other trees around it. Um, the concept of a mother tree really took mm-hmm. hold in my mind. And then I saw Sienna. Sienna came to me, and I could see her sitting all alone in the first pew of a church with a child-sized casket nearby. And I <sighs> blended that grieving mother all on her own with this isolated mother tree out in the meadow into this mystery deciduous. Wow. When you were describing the tree by itself out in the meadow, I was getting an eerie feeling. But at the same time, I thought it sounded really beautiful too. And so it's almost like conflicting emotions, which I'm sure you incorporated into your story as well. And that's what I love to do, to write about conflicting emotions, emotions that don't typically go together, mm-hmm. um, love and joy with despair and grief. I mean, those just don't go together. But I hope that I successfully did that with this story. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't imagine losing a child. I am I am a mother. I have one child, but I can't imagine losing a child, let alone two. And then what you were saying about the marriage and and how in spite of everything they've lost, how they kind of come together. That's, that's amazing. 
can you tell us a little bit about Sienna, your main character, and what gives her and her husband, for that matter, the will and the strength to carry on after such devastating losses? Well, at the beginning of the story, Sienna, of course, is lost in grief and regret, like anyone would be, of course. Mm. But for most of the story, she is a strong survivor, just capable of fighting for those she loves. And after she loses her daughter, Kira, she loses Kira first. Her will and strength to carry on, that comes from her son being there for Kai. She Mm. knows she has to be strong for him. She knows she has to carry on and raise him. She admits to herself that maybe she has become a little overprotective of him. I think that probably is natural, too. You lose one child, you're going to cling to that other child. Mm -hmm. And she does. She admits she's guilty maybe of overprotecting him. But the book opens with the loss of Kai, her son. So her will shifts. It shifts to finding the answers of what happened to her kids. Mm. Everyone around her, people are accusing her of doing some terrible things. Again, a social media hour after her, the police begin investigating her. And she herself, just with a shaky grasp on the events and the, the gravity of what's happened, is forced to continue on in order to get the answers. Mm -hmm. Even if they're horrifying answers, she has to know. So that is part of what keeps her going through some of the story. But I won't tell you the rest. Okay. (laughs) I won't won't tell you the other piece. Read the book. It's a great plot point. (laughs) It's a great plot point. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that for most of the book, Sienna is a strong character. She does have, you know, experiences of doubt, of course, after she loses her children. But for the most part, she is a strong character. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like writing from her perspective? I'm always curious to hear about how men get into writing from the female perspective. Mm -hmm. Well, I can tell you about myself. For me, I have spent my life surrounded by strong women. And they inspire me to write. The idea of writing about powerful women is what motivates me and allows me to sit down for hours and just have the story flow mm. when I have that character. And I mentioned earlier that you know, I'd been in the forest and I stumbled onto this tree and that was you know, so the impetus for the story. But then Sienna came to me and that's what drove the story. Mm. But I'll tell you, as a gay man, I have been surrounded by women, strong women all my life. They've been my best friends all my life. Back to kindergarten, my first best friend, Catuela Real, my first best friend, a female. All through my life, my female friends, they've included me in some of the most important moments in their lives. Mm. You, You name it, some of the most important moments in their lives, I've been part of it. I've listened to them, I've paid attention, and I've learned from them. When I was 15, I left my family. Uh, My mother and father separated, and the usual story, uproar in the family, tumultuous time. And so I moved in with my maternal grandmother. Mm. At that time, she was suffering with myasthenia gravis. It's a disease that causes uh, deterioration of muscles and mobility. Although when I decided to move, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how sick she was. I knew she was getting older and I knew her health had been declining since she lost her husband two or three years before that, but I had no idea how 
six she really was until I got here to Texas and moved in with her. I was at 15. At 15 years old, I moved in with her. And it was just the two of us for about two years. It was just the two of us. And as she deteriorated, as her condition worsened, I took care of her. She took care of me and I took care of her. I ultimately took on the responsibility of caring for her in almost every way you you can imagine. Yeah. Her body failed her for sure. And I was there to help. But her mind was sharp. We spent all of that time sort of isolated, just the two of us. She couldn't really leave the home, doctor's appointments, things like that. Her wheelchair, it was a feat for us to get to her appointments. It was just the two of us. We would read books and talk about the books. We spent hours just talking. Again, a 16-year-old, 17-year-old. She was 73. She had a great sense of humor. And we could have conversations about whether it was a book or whatever was on TV or whatever was in the news. She had a hospital bed, one of those that elevates and it has the railings. And I would sit there in a recliner next to her and we would just spend our time together. I love that. Yeah, it was it was an interesting situation, one that I, I didn't know I was getting into when I decided to move here and away from the turmoil back at home. Mm-hmm. Um, but I learned a lot from her, too. And she inspired a character, Charlotte, in my first book. Um, I don't know that I realized how closely I modeled the character after her, but in retrospect, I can see, yes, Florine, Grandma, she's in, Char- she's in that character, Charlotte. Yeah. I think just over a lifetime of being surrounded by women as my best friends. As a gay man, I wasn't necessarily inclined to have the closest relationships or friendships with other boys. It just didn't work that way with me. Naturally, I was mm-hmm. more interested in what the girls were doing. That's just how it was for me. So I, I maintained many of those relationships even today. I mean, today my best friend is somebody I knew when we were six or seven her brother was in diapers wow and we've been best friends all of our lives i'm very proud of being able to maintain those relationships but it influences perspective mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's that influence that perspective that i draw on when i then write about women i hope that doesn't sound arrogant uh, i don't want it to i'm just drawing on my own experiences and the um, perspective i have from a life lived like that it doesn't sound arrogant at all. I love that relationship with your grandmother. What a gift and what a responsibility, you know, at the same time. It's it's more of those contrasting or conflicting emotions. I mean, mm-hmm. what, a, what a terrific role model. It's your experience. No question about yeah. that. It, it certainly forced me to grow up quickly, yeah. to take on really just sort of running a house um, and, and taking care of her. And it got to a point where she needed as much care as a young child would need. Yeah. But that's what you do. That's your grandmother. That's what you do. And so I did it. Um, but yeah, it certainly accelerated my maturing. It, it had to, it needed to. Yeah. I coupled that with, you know, I had an older sister. She and I were very close and she passed away at 23. I was 19. She was 23. But oh, no. for most of our young ones, she and I were very, very close. I can't help but attribute part of how I approach writing women from that relationship to just a very close relationship with my older sister. So I don't know, I think it's a lot of those things that all come together to give me a perspective that I hope helps me do it well, to do it justice, and with respect, I hope. Yeah, I love hearing 
And I don't know why I love hearing men's stories about how they write from a women's perspective and, and what their experiences are. And I, like I said, I don't know why, because women have been writing as men since the beginning of time when women couldn't write. They had to use a man's name, you know. But, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I don't know yes. why the reverse is so fascinating to me, but you know. <laughs> oh, well, well, just I one of those it. things. But it is something in my mind that I wonder, you know, I, I hope that readers don't regard it in any way with any arrogance because of the, the reverence I hope to apply to the writing and to the characters in the story. I hope that comes through. Yeah, yeah. So you touched on a little bit earlier about a few of the things that our reviewer said, and, and I wanted to talk about a few of the things that she said as well, because I'm just going to brag for a little bit. It was a great review. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, Brag I, all you want. I am. I <laughs> she says, um, sometimes to get the best story, you have to plunge into the dark parts you'd rather not think about. And Devendorf does it well with respect and measure. And she also said he isn't afraid to go there and do that and build an emotion entangled story that hurts you, frightens you and entertains you. So what is it about the dark side that writers find so compelling to write about? Well, the darkness exists. That's a fact. I mean, the darkness is there. Dark, troubling, saddening things happen. But it isn't the dark that I find compelling. Mm. It's the idea that no matter how far down deep in the darkness, that the light can still find you. The light is still there and it can find you no matter how dark it gets not letting the darkness take hold that's what i find compelling Mm. despite the circumstances despite the darkness not letting it take hold sienna goes through so much more than anyone should ever have to and she talks about that in in the book why me but i brighten that darkness by focusing on her love for her children Mm. that's the story i said that at the beginning it's a story about a mother's love a mother's strength I hope that when the reader reaches the latter part of the book, they feel a swell in their heart. This isn't a story about sadness. I would never write a story that's sad for no reason. There has to be a reason. Mm-hmm. Sienna's circumstances force her to be powerful. And I remember a quote when I was writing this, I read a quote that Ernest Hemingway said something like, write hard and clear about what hurts. And I tried mm-hmm. because what could be harder, what could be harder than losing a child? You said it yourself. You can't imagine it. You're right. So what do we do when it happens? That's what this story is about. Yeah. It's about hope. You've got to have yeah, a little hope. It's not about the darkness. You've got to have some hope. Yeah. So was there a lot of research involved in, in putting the story together or did it mostly just come from your imagination? Well, the story definitely came from my imagination. I just can't think of another story that is along these lines, but a lot of research does have to go into it because I always want the story to be legitimate, mm-hmm. accurate, thorough. I don't want anyone to read uh, some of what I've written and doubt the accuracy of how it's been done. Mm-hmm. So yes, I, you know, I mentioned early on about how trees, and again, it's just probably more detail than than's needed, but Trees literally send electrical signals through their interconnected web of roots, and they use pheromones to communicate with each other, communicate 
danger. If there's a swarm of wasps eating leaves, they will release pheromones that warn nearby trees of that danger. I just That's found amazing. that fascinating. I, I read a book, it's called The Hidden Life of Trees, you know, what they feel and how they communicate. I just found it fascinating. And so drawing on some of that scientific fact, it emboldened me to write this story and some of the elements in the story. You know, I mentioned at the opening that people might wonder when they read, is there something paranormal going on here? Well, sometimes real science might seem paranormal. Mm-hmm. It, it might feel that way. So yeah, I researched a lot of that. I had to research this aspect of the Yvonne character, which she brings to the story and her support of Sienna is you know, her own passion of meditation and yoga and how that can help Sienna with some of what she's enduring. And I learned all about that, how meditation actually affects the brain, how the size of the hypothalamus changes while meditating. The doses of hormones that flood the brain and affect perception, I, I found all of that fascinating and all measured. Mm-hmm. CAT scans and MRIs that can verify that these changes, these physical changes occur during a meditative state. And of course, I studied for the police scenes, you know, can the police lift a fingerprint off of a plastic bag? I don't know. I need to research that. You know, there was a lot of that type of detail that I needed to know if I'm going to write about it. Writing about grief counseling and responses to loss. I spent hours and hours researching, which is necessary. It occurred with my last book and it's happening with this current one. It's just part of the process for me, going back to what I said a moment ago, that it's got to be legitimate. It, Mm -hmm. It has to be a legitimate story. There can't be holes. That wouldn't work for me. I wouldn't enjoy a book if I encountered elements of it that I knew were inaccurate. That's not going to happen in one of my books. Well, yeah, if it doesn't work for you, it's not going to work for your readers, right? (laughs) Right, for sure, for sure. (laughs) Well, wow, there was a lot more research involved than I would have thought. What does your writing process look like? Well, I'm always making notes. Just on my my iPhone, I, I keep a schedule, a catalog of just things that I encounter or see or that I think about or I might hear something and it triggers a thought. I'll make a note of those things. And I can then dwell on those notes and expand them into a plot point or maybe even into a storyline or an entire concept for a book. Hmm. When I sat down to write my very first book, let me rephrase that, when I sat down again to focus on writing a book, um, <laughs> which I had not done in a few years. Life gets in the way. I mean, it's just how it happens. But right. you start writing and then life gets in the way and it, a couple of years go by. When I sat down in 2016 to, uh, again, refocus my time and energy on writing, I first spent several weeks just cataloging, making notes, making notes. And then when I felt I had a, some strong contenders that I could develop into stories, my husband and I just sort of talked through them one night, just talked through these ideas. And the ones that he latched onto, that he had the greatest response to, I took those and just in my mind, refined them, mm-hmm. sort of building out plot points just in my own mind. And we then, that fall, took a trip to the cold. It was actually in winter. We took a trip. It's freezing cold. We spent a lot of time inside. And I just started plotting the beginning and where I wanted it to end. 
And then when I sat down to start writing, I just let everything in between happen. I knew where I was going with the story. I knew how it would end. I knew what I wanted the twist to be, what the climax of the story was going to be. I could see that. Mm -hmm. How I got there, I just let it happen organically. I don't hyper plot a story. I almost feel like that boxes me in. But what I do is when I'm writing, it's all consuming. You know, I'll go to bed and wake up and thinking about the characters and I dream about them at night. I mean, I, I know them. I know what they eat. I know, I know all about them. And being able to remain focused on the characters like that, constantly thinking about them, it helps me to understand what they would do next in their situation. Mm -hmm. So even if I'm not sitting at my computer typing, if I'm exercising, that's often my routine. I'll exercise in the morning for an hour or so. And I'll spend that time thinking about the characters and what's happening to them next. So that when I do sit down to write, I'm able to pretty quickly just jump right back into the scene, right back into the action from where I left off the day before, because I've spent so much time away from the computer thinking about what they're doing and what happens next. So I'm always plotting ahead. I'm always plotting out what's happening, but not in a formal way where I sit down at the onset of the project and define every major plot point. I don't do that. It's the beginning for sure. It's the end. And along the way, you know, if I'm on chapter five, I've got an idea of what needs to happen in chapter eight and in chapter 10. And when I get to chapters eight and chapter 10, I've got an idea from just constantly dwelling on the story of what needs to happen in chapter 15. I haven't written it yet. I'm not there yet, but I know what has to happen Mm -hmm. in that chapter. So that's my process of just constantly thinking about the characters, thinking about the story, living it with them helps drive it for me. Well, that's amazing. I love that you spend your off time, quote, you know, thinking about the story. So when you sit down, you're ready to go. You don't sit there and say, okay, what am I going to write about next? It just kind of happens. So, <laughs> And I don't know that I could stop it anyway. I don't right. know if I could stop myself from thinking about them. You get so wrapped up in the characters and in the story. Yeah. It's not possible for me to not think about them. It's very, very tough. And I know that irritates probably everyone around me. That (laughs) that makes me very one note, right? I'm just constantly thinking about the story and I want to talk about it. It probably makes me a boring person for a little while, but that's what works for me. Yeah. No, you're just focused. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) Focused. That's right. That's right. Hmm. Now, you, how would you classify your book? Because it's got a little bit of everything. It's got love and, and loss and paranormal and mystery. and. <laughs> yes. I had a review from a book blogger who said, this is a suspense novel and it's a family drama all in one. Hmm. Well, that's a great compliment, I think. Mm-hmm. And he went on to say that the you know, family drama stories, usually it's about the characters and the emotion. It's a very emotional story contrasted with you know, suspense or a thriller, which often carves that out and it focuses on one or two emotions, you know, panic, fear. It doesn't have room for all of the other emotions that a person can feel. Mm. And he complimented the fact that I was able to, to bring other emotions into a thriller story. So yeah, is it a a mystery? Sure. There's a mystery here. And um, again, I know we don't want to give that away, but (laughs) your 
reviewer hit on it. One of the best endings she's read in years. It's the twist. My editor said, you've got a great twist here, Michael. He said, that is what's going to sell this book. People love a great twist and you've got one. He said, it's rare that it can be done really well and you've got one. That's the sell here. That's how you market this book. But he said, I'll tell you on a side note that this book could actually touch somebody who is dealing with loss. Mm -hmm. Maybe somebody who has lost a child or is dealing with the loss of a family member or a loved one. The way you have written about how that process, how Sienna goes through that process, it could actually be cathartic for somebody. I thought, wow, yeah. I, that never even crossed my mind. Never even crossed my mind Yeah, that you, me writing this a thriller, a mystery, that I could be successful in incorporating the emotion and doing it again with the reverence and respect that it might even benefit somebody who is struggling with loss. Well, I was struck by that. Yeah. So to answer your question, what kind of book is this? Well, you boil it all down, yes. It's a suspense novel. It's a mystery. But there's a lot else to it. The emotion that's in it that you don't typically find in a mystery or a suspense novel. As that blogger review pointed out, I didn't focus just on fear. I didn't focus just on the terror the person's enduring. I brought the other emotions in. Again, I hope I did that well. Yeah. Wow. So now if there's anyone out there just trying to decide whether or not to read this book, really? <laughs> Go get it. <laughs> Go and get it. Go and get it. For sure. What do you like to read? Do you like to read all those different types of books as well? I, I really do. Reading for me is a treat. You know, I think I mentioned that when I first moved to Texas and moved in with my grandmother, we really couldn't go anywhere. She didn't have the mobility to go anywhere. So it was just mm -hmm. us at home. And we would read. But I mean, I think the very first book she and I read together was The Color Purple. I read it first, then she read it, and then we got to talk about it. Wow. And we loved that book so much that we ran out, or I ran out and got us uh, The Temple of My Familiar, another book by Alice Walker. And we did the same thing. I'll read it, and then you read it. You know, the old paperbacks. And mm -hmm. um, I, I'm sure that contributed to my love of reading because by despite default spent a lot of time by myself and her medications would cause her to sleep and she was essentially bedridden i couldn't go anywhere and we did have a nurse we were not a wealthy family but we had i'm sure paid through medicare a nurse who would come in once a week and check on her but outside of that visit once a week it was just us mm -hmm. so i spent a lot of time reading i mean hours and hours and hours reading and that continues today. I don't have as much time as I did then, but you know, if I'm going to take a trip, I'm going to take a trip to our lake house. That usually is preceded by a trip to Barnes and Noble or half price books. So I can stock up on a bundle of books to take with me to the lake. I might spend the first week just reading. I'll start a book in the morning and I'll, I, I might finish that book by evening and I'll mm -hmm. put it down and take another one right out of the pile and start it up. <laughs> I, I don't even take a break. I just give me another book. I love to read that way. You know, there are certain genres, but I read across the board. You think about big names I can, that people know. I love Michael Crichton. Michael Crichton is an author I discovered when I was a teenager, and I've read all of his books many times. He's a genius for the technology and the sci-fi genre and the, the worlds that he creates in his novels. 
sphere sphere and the underwater aspect of that and living underwater or you know Congo and in the jungle or Jurassic Park everyone knows just the technology and the the worlds that he builds in his stories I just find fascinating but at the same time someone like Anne Rice who's completely different I'm not a huge fan of the genre that Anne Rice wrote in but I love the imagery the way she writes I know right. a lot of people define her sort of you know flowery writing and I disagree I just think it's glorious I love the the imagery in her writing and at the same time you know polar opposite someone like Jackie Collins I, you know, if I if I'm on a podcast and given an opportunity to say yeah, I'm a Jackie Collins fan I'm going to take it <laughs> you know, her first book and you know, it's very different from someone like Michael Crichton and you know, the, the genre itself is very different but I love Jackie the first book of hers that I read was American Star, and it wasn't a series. It was a standalone book. The characters, the drama, they stay with me. I can think about Lauren, the main character. I Wow. <laughs> I, they stick with me. But at the same time, you know, so for her, with Jackie Collins, it's the characters. It's the drama. With Anne Rice, it's the imagery. With Michael Crichton, it's the technology. It's the sci-fi. Or others like Cormac McCarthy, the intensity of his stories. You know, those are some intense stories, sometimes dark. People would say dark. The intensity of, of what he incorporates into his story, I find alluring. And others, you know, Sarah Lott, a relatively newer writer, she has a fascinating style of writing. One of her books, it's almost written like a collection of reports, yet somehow she manages to make it fascinating, hmm. intriguing, and consistent. I, I don't know how she does it. So I like all kinds of books. I'm not hung up on a particular genre. Yeah. I just finished reading Janelle Brown, Watch Me Disappear. I'm sure you've heard of that one. It's a book where people say the main character isn't likable. And how can you read a book when the main character isn't likable? And I agree with all that. The main character isn't likable, but I still love the book. Yeah. <laughs> I still love the book. So Sometimes that's part of the charm, though. You know, you you like to. I agree. Yeah, you like to not like the character. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I don't know if I could do that if I would write that way. Yeah, but I found it very interesting. You're such a well-rounded reader that you must have a lot of influences, a lot of different influences on your writing. I hope so. I hope so. I remember going to a friend's birthday party. It was actually my boss. My boss when I was maybe 24 years old. She took us to a restaurant in downtown Dallas. It doesn't exist anymore called Star Canyon. It was her, another coworker of ours, and a friend of theirs, and then me and my then boyfriend. He's my husband now. Hmm. So it was, what, the five of us? I was the youngest at 24, and you know, then you know, my partner. And then the other people at the table, the women at the table, double my age. I think one their friend was probably in her 70s. And we went around the table and asked, if you could do anything in your life, what would you do? And that was the question of the night. I remember one of them said that. What, it's the question of the night. Because <laughs> none of us really knew each other well. And so at a situation like that, we're at a birthday dinner. She threw out a question that forces conversation when mm-hmm. you don't know each other well. That was the question of the night. What would you do if you could do anything? And of course, without even just a blink, I said, I would be a writer. I would be a writer. I'd already tried writing at that time. Um, 
the year before I'd spent a lot of time and energy, but again, I just, I, my job, other things pulled me away from it. or I allowed myself to be pulled away from it. Mm-hmm. I've always had such an admiration for those who could write a great story, craft a book. I just was in awe of the ability to do that and always wanted to do it myself. Well, welcome made to the club. Happen. Yeah. Yeah. I made it happen. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you. So how has the coronavirus affected your life? I know you, you said you, you enjoy traveling. Where would you like to go when people can start traveling again more freely? Sure. Well, I'm very fortunate to have a lake house in Wisconsin mm. near my in-laws. We go up there to spend time, ordinarily spend time with in-laws, but because it's, you know, it's our house, it's isolated on a lake, it's not a public access lake. And a lot of lakes in Texas are just party lakes. Mm-hmm. This one, you, you have to have a residence on the lake in order to access it. So it's private, quiet, tranquil, mm. and secluded. And because of that, we've been able to continue to travel a little bit back and forth between Dallas and that lake house because we're not generally out in the public. We're just right. going from one home to another home, private home. And so we've been able to continue to travel last spring and last fall, and we're getting ready to do the same again here in about a month, go back up there and just succumb to the the forest, just enjoy that time. But we are avid travelers, and so outside of COVID, so yes, I'm I'm very fortunate to have been able to to still get away when I know a lot of people just can't. They can't do it, and they just feel bottled up and and eager to get out and Mm -hmm. travel somewhere. Uh, I've had a little bit of travel, so I can't complain. But when things do open up fully, I mean, I'd love to go back to California. We've been in the habit for the last two years of going and spending a little time in California, Southern California. Every year, usually in late spring before it gets too hot out there. I mean, you know, it can be mm-hmm. blistering hot very quickly. But if you go at the right time, places like Palm Springs and San Diego or the weather's great, and it's a very welcoming vibe there. Um, hmm. Just a very hospitable, welcoming community in Palm Springs. It, it almost feels like a, a second home, and maybe someday it will be. You know, that's mm-hmm. down the road in the future. But I really enjoy Southern California, and I can't wait to go back. Mm-hmm. So, what's next for you? Are you working on another novel? Is there anything that you can share with us? Yes, I am. I the way this process works, you know, is you write a novel, you edit the novels, and you query the novel, and it's just such a taxing, exhausting process. Mm-hmm. But outside of that, when not doing those things, yes, I am writing a third novel. I'm about seven or eight chapters in, mm. and it's titled Treasure. And it's about a girl determined to find her missing sister while at the same time coping with the challenges of having a mother, a single mother, struggling to distinguish between reality and fantasy. Mom has some issues and she's got to help manage that while at the same time finding her sister. So I'm excited about this one too. I think I've got to I'm onto something good. Yeah. So uh, how long does it take you to write a novel? Like, do you have the timeline planned or you just let it flow? I just let it flow. But coincidentally, um, the last two both took 11 months. Hmm. I mean, almost to the day. I mean, not literally, but almost 
to start from the beginning and get to, you know, the final period on the last sentence. And of course, then all the editing starts and that takes months. And, mm-hmm. right, it's a, a long process just because you get to the end. I mean, you're not done. There's a lot still to do, but about 11 months. So theoretically by, you know, this fall, I'll be finished with this one. Nice. That's my goal. Nice. And I have a track record of doing it, <laughs> of completing it that way. So I'm optimistic. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you wanted to share with our listeners today? Just that I have lots of other stories still to write. I mentioned I've got just a catalog of kernels that I know I can turn into great stories. I've got a lot of stories left to write and I just, I can't wait for people to read them. I want them to read Deciduous and hey, there'll be more. That's what I want people to know. Absolutely. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure getting to know more about you and your work. Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate all your support. Thank you for joining me today on Inside Scoop Live for my interview with Michael Devendorf, author of Deciduous. For more information about Michael and his work, visit his website at michaeldevendorf.com. And be sure to check out our other interviews at InsideScoopLive.com.